Have you ever noticed the hardest place in a conversation is the beginning? How do you get a conversation going with somebody, particularly if it's somebody you don't know very well, or maybe you're meeting for the first time, and you're asking yourself the question, how do you send I get this conversation going? And those first few words or first few sentences just make all the difference. And so the hardest place often for us in conversations with other folks is, how do I get started? Well, that is often the case in our relationship with God, because the conversation that we carry on with God is what the Bible calls prayer. But when we pray, how do we get the conversation with God going? How do we start? Where do we start? So often when we come to the issue of prayer, where most of us stumble is we say, what? I don't know what to say. I don't have a clue as to what I'm supposed to say to the Lord. How do I get this conversation with God started? Well, it's actually simple, even though it doesn't seem like it's simple. The place to start with God in a conversation is the place of worship. Worship is the place to begin the conversation with God. Now, this is what we tend to do very often in prayer. We tend to see prayer as all about request. So as we go through the week, if different problems come up, different situations hit us, we have an emergency or whatever, we begin to go to God with the request. Lord, would you do this? Would you do that? God, would you intervene here, etc.? And then we see worship as something that we do on Sunday mornings in a room like this with the band and all that we just did for the last 30 minutes. So we tend to confine worship to a Sunday morning experience. And then the prayer time is what we do when we're up against the wall or just during the week with the request that we give to God. But actually worship is supposed to be something that we engage in every time that we pray. Worship is the place for us to begin in prayer. In fact, you will find that when we begin prayer with worship, our prayers will run much smoother and our prayer life will become much more effective if we will begin prayer with worship. I'm in a series of sermons I'm starting today on just that subject, and that is the correspondence between worship and prayer. That God would have us and wants to teach us to worship Him in prayer. And we're going to look for the next few weeks at different passages of Scripture that are going to help us to understand the role of worship in helping us get this conversation started with God in prayer. Today we're going to look at Psalm 100. A call to worship because the 100th Psalm is the Lord calling us to worship Him and to begin to experience Him in prayer through the experience of worship. So if you have your Bibles, if you will turn in them to Psalm 100 or if they're on your iPhone, if you'll turn your phones on, uh, you turn your Bibles on to the 100th Psalm. Psalm 100, this is one of the accession songs. It was used by the Jewish people as they would come for special occasions to worship, particularly when they would come to the city of Jerusalem. It is a call and a summons for all people of all ethnicities to join with the Jewish people to worship God. This was originally, the psalm was originally to accompany the bringing of a thank offering. And it follows an interesting format. And we'll see this as we move through the psalm. And that is there's a command, a call to worship, and then there's a reason why. 
In other words, he's going to say multiple times through here, I want you to come with singing. I want you to worship me. And then I'm going to give you the reason why you should worship me. And so we'll see that as we move through the 100th Psalm. And as we do so, my sermon outline is printed in your bulletin as an insert. And I invite you to follow along. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. What is our response to that? Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now we see in verse 1 that there is this call, this command to worship him. Literally in the Hebrew of this 100th Psalm where it says make a joyful noise to the Lord. It is an imperative. It is a command. He's commanding us to make a joyful noise to him. Now the Hebrew word that's translated joyful noise there is an interesting word. It carries several connotations. The first is it means to split the ears with sound. In other words, he's saying, I want you to worship me and I want you to worship worship me with a sound that is so strong that it splits your ears when you worship me. Now, we Baptists don't normally associate ear-splitting noise with our worship. We tend to be more on the quiet side. We leave all the noise to the Pentecostals, and we sort of lay back in our area. But one of the mistakes that I think Christianity has made over the last thousand years plus is that we have tended to sort of pigeonhole different types of worship styles. Well, if you're Catholic, you worship this way. If you're Baptist, you worship this way. If you're Pentecostal, you worship this way, etc., etc. Tradition is not supposed to be our guideline for worship. The Word of God is supposed to be our guideline for worship. And the Word of God is not surrounded and guided by tradition. In other words, what the Word of God does is it just pulls from all kinds of places. We're the ones who sort of pulled in and say, well, we only do it this way because this is the way that we do it. And God sometimes says to us, I know that's the way you've been doing it, but I'd like for you to do something a little bit different. You see, my wife, uh, we've been married pushing 30 years. And uh, I've discovered one thing about marriage, and that is it's good to mix it up every now and then with the way you express how you, you love your wife. And so, you know, I don't just give her the same present in the same way every time. When you and I worship the Lord, what he would like for us to do is get creative about it. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if the Lord looks at us and says, you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do. I'm really getting sort of bored with this. And you're probably getting bored with it, too, because it's the same thing over and over and again. I want you to mix it up, and I've given you all kinds of ways I want you to mix it up. And so what he says here is make a joyful noise. That Again, that Hebrew word, an ear-splitting noise. Get into it to the Lord. Now, the first idea is that, that sense of triumph, that sense of, again, it being ear-splitting. It is also the sense of a spontaneous response to the presence of God. In other words, I look at God, I see who He is, I experience who He is. I experience what He has done, what He is doing, and anticipation of what He's going to do, and my worship is a spontaneous response to Him. 
I am engaging the Lord, and as I engage the Lord, I have to respond. I'm just compelled to respond inside of me to who he is, that spontaneous response to who he is. The picture here of this joyful noise is literally in the Hebrews of a blowing trumpet. They used to get out when they would get ready to worship God, and they would begin to just blow and sound off these trumpets as their way of calling themselves to prayer. And it was that sense of we are in the presence of God, we know we are in the presence of God, and we are responding to the presence of God. And folks, let me say this, worship, if it's really going to be worship, has to come in an experience of God. I can't talk about worship and experience off of somebody else's experience. It's wonderful to hear about it, but it's got to become personal for me. It can't just be an intellectual situation where I know some stuff and feel good about it. I've got to marry the intellectual with the emotion and respond to the Lord. And so there's that spontaneous experience because I'm experiencing Jesus. And because I'm experiencing Him right now, wherever that happens to be, doesn't have to be in church on Sunday morning, anywhere that happens to be, I am just going to automatically begin to respond to Him in worship. Now, he says, shout to the who. He says, shout to the Lord. The name for God there, capital L-O-R-D in your English translations, is God's personal name translated either Jehovah or Yahweh. Now there's so many connotations to that name and I just want to hit on one of them. This is the personal name that God gave to Moses when he said, I want to enter into a covenant with you. This name, above all the names of God in the Old Testament, was precious to the Jews because it was the covenant name of God. Now, this is a challenge we have in Western culture. The concept of covenant that is at the center of the Old Testament and Jewish thought and their understanding of God doesn't really have an exact equivalent in Western culture. So trying to explain covenant is very challenging because we don't really have a direct correspondence to it in our culture. So I'm going to try to get at it as best I can. Marriage is probably as close as we get to the concept of covenant. In marriage, you have two things. In marriage, you have a legal union between two people. So you have the legal union that is bound by law. But if it's just that, you don't have much. Because the most important part is the relational aspect of marriage. I mean, if all you got is a piece of paper that's hanging on the wall or stuffed away in a file cabinet that says you are married, you're in for some rough times. But if you've got that relationship that is fresh and growing and getting closer and deeper every day, then that is the heart of marriage. The idea of covenant is that there is a bond between us and the Lord, but it is far more than some kind of legal bond. It is more than anything else a relational bond between us and God. This is what the Lord does for us in covenant and why the psalmist here is saying, split your ears in worshiping Him. He is saying here when he says, sing, make a joyful noise to the Lord, make the joyful noise to the Lord God, the one who has committed Himself to you and who has pledged Himself to you. He has taken the initiative to come to us and say, 
I want to be your best friend. I want to live in a close relationship with you. I want to be as close to you as the air that you breathe. And I am committing myself to you and pledging myself to you before you pledge yourself to me. Now, Jesus took this to an even higher plane. Because what Jesus said is, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and that covenant is going to be made in my blood. When I go to the cross and I die for you and I shed every ounce of blood in my body, what I'm saying to you is I am committed to you to the point of dying for you. I am committed to you to the point of shedding all of my blood for you. I am committed to you because I'm giving everything I've got to you, and I am sealing this covenant with my blood. Now, all of us in our relationship with the Lord blow it from time to time and mess up. and We have dry spells, etc. And we're tempted to say, well, my relationship with God is a mess because of what I've done. And yes, we mess it up. But that doesn't change His commitment to us. Folks, His commitment to you was sealed on the cross in His blood 2,000 years ago. And there is nothing you can do to change the commitment that Jesus has to you. We cannot rewrite Calvary. We cannot rewrite what he did on the cross. And then Jesus said, this relationship I've got with you, let me tell you the power that's behind it. Three days later, I walked out of the grave. That is the power behind the commitment that I have made and am making to you. That is security in our relationship with him. That's why in verse 2 it says, serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. How can I serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing? Because I know that he is in covenant with me. That he has committed and pledged himself to me. And my response to that is, Jesus, I'm going to serve you with gladness. And Jesus, I'm going to come into your presence with thanksgiving. Then notice verse 3. We were made to worship him. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And because of that, we are his, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. We were made by him, and we were made for him. In the book of Genesis, there's this picture of God. And the picture of God is, is of God just bending over dust. And God began to take dirt and work with dirt and mold dirt until he made a human out of the dirt. Now, follow me on this. When God says in the book of Genesis that he makes us, he says he makes us in his image. Now, why did God, above all of creation, and we're the human beings are the only part of creation that were made in his image. Why were we made in his image? What does it mean to be made in his image? A central aspect of being made in his image is that he made us in his image because he placed in us the capacity to relate to Him. I can't say that strong enough. He placed in us, when we were made in His image, the capacity to relate to Him. So, so often when we say, I can't relate to God, you don't have any choice in being able to relate to God. He already put it in you without you even asking Him to have the capacity to relate to Him. When God shaped you and molded you in your soul, in the pardon expression, guts of who you and I are, He said, I want to know them, I want to talk with them, I want to relate to them. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a capacity in them so that they can relate to me. And that's called in His image. And His image in you and I means that we've got the capacity to relate to Him. 
Now, you remember in Genesis that God used to come down and walk with Adam and Eve, it says, in the cool of the evening. That's the first prayer experience in the Bible. He came down, and they just walked around in the garden and talked to each other. And that was prayer. Now, how in the world could Adam and Eve talk to God? Because God had created them in His image with the capacity for them to relate to Him. They already had a capacity in them to commune and to talk with God. Now, God was so involved in our creation. Let me give you some ideas about it. First of all, in the Trinity, that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it is God, our creation is from the Father God, creating through the Son, by the person of the Holy Spirit. Creation of you and me is sort of like this. God the Father is the architect. The Son is the contractor. And the Holy Spirit is the builder. The Father God, as the architect, drew out the plans, the design for who you are. And then he looked over at the Son and he said, start creating. And then the Son reached out to the Holy Spirit and they began to work together to build who we are. Now, I mentioned just a moment ago that, that God in, in creation created us with that capacity to commune with Him, to talk with Him in prayer. But He wasn't satisfied with that capacity inside of us. So He came down in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because He wanted to get up real close and real and personal. And you can't get any closer and personal than Jesus. So I carry the capacity to relate to him in me by being in his image. But secondly, Jesus is right there and he comes to us so that we can relate personally to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of your creation is that he created you also with design. In mind. This is what I mean by that. When God created us, He created us with a design and a purpose. The trajectory of your life is God's design. What God's got for you, He had already dumped it into you. Okay, And life is a journey of discovering what the Lord has already put inside of you. And prayer is where we work that out. Lord, how do you want to use me? Lord, what have you put inside of me? Now this is a mistake sometimes we make in this process. Instead of going to God and saying, God, help me to discover, help me to recognize, and help me to appreciate what you put inside of me and how you've designed me and the purpose and the trajectory of my life, what we tend to do if we're not careful is we go to the Lord in prayer and we say, God, I'm not as good as so-and-so, and God, I really would like to be so-and-so, and God, I, I just feel this, and I got this against me. In other words, we just pray all around it, and we're so busy comparing ourselves to other people and feeling down on ourselves because of what we don't have and how good we're not and how we wish we'd have been this way and hadn't been that and didn't turn out the way we thought we should have, that we miss what God's got for us because we're so busy looking out here comparing and getting frustrated instead of looking on inside, discovering what God's put inside of us and just accepting it and rejoicing in it and being happy about it. 
God made you the way you are. Now, you can spend all your life bellyaching about it if you want to and being miserable. Or you can say, God, you made me the way I am, and I'm going to find that out. I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to enjoy that. I'm going to rejoice in that, and I'm going to find the specific way you want to use me. And I'm going to walk in that. That's the reason we, we start praising when you start seeing that, A, God made me this way. And then when the way God made you starts lining up with where and when and who he wants to use you with, you will be blown away at how God is using you and working through you. Just go to prayer and say, God, would you show me how you made me? Now, one other part. Every time in the book of Genesis that God made in creation, he stepped back and he said, that is good, that is good, and that is good. Why was it good? Because God made it. It was good because he made it and he called it as good. It wasn't good because somebody else stepped in and said, well, we think it's good. It wasn't good because what he made said, I feel good. It was good because God said it was good. Now, I realize that sin got in there and marred it and messed a lot of stuff up. But when God made it, he said it was good. The reason I'm jumping all up and down on this point is this. When God made us, God stepped back from your life and he said, that's good. That's good because I made it. So... When you and I step back from our life and say, I ain't good, we're contradicting God. When we believe somebody else who steps around in our life and says, pardon my English, you ain't no good, they are contradicting God. And when I choose to believe what I'm saying about myself and others are saying about me, but I'm not believing what the Lord said about me, I'm living a lie. At that point, which leads to bondage. We got to listen to what God says about us. And God said, I made you. And because of that, verse 3, he says, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's a place to worship. Finally, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. In his faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good. If in our heart of hearts. We don't believe God's good. We won't worship him. If deep down I don't really believe that God is good. We won't worship him. And all of us are going to go through some experiences in life that will make us think that God's not good. Let's just be honest. All of us are going to lose some things or some people from our lives that are going to cause us to question the goodness of God. When I just preached a moment ago about, you know, looking at our own lives and saying, hey, I'm good because God said I'm good. It goes the other way too. Do I look up at God and say, hey, God is good? So, why is God good? What makes God good? The Hebrew word that's translated good here means to be of superior value and quality, it means to act out of the highest motive. In other words, when God works in our lives, He works in our lives out of the highest motive 
that he possibly could, and he works in our lives according to eternity. One of the reasons we have such a hard time at times understanding the goodness of God is what God does in your life is in terms of eternity, not the next 24 hours. And when I want God to do something in my life in terms of the next 24 hours and he doesn't, it's easy for me to question the goodness of God. When my son was a junior in high school, he wanted to get a car. And I knew that him getting a car meant he was going to have to get a job and pay the bills because I knew I was going to pay the bills in the car. So I knew that that meant he was going to have to get a job and help and pay his insurance and the gas to go in the tank and so forth. But I also knew that at that time in his life he needed to focus on his education and he had a chemistry class in particular that was giving him fits and that he was just going to have to focus on his education at that, at that year so he couldn't get a job, he couldn't have a car. That's probably been the most unpopular I've ever been in my son's eyes. Uh, Jonathan never gave me much pushback, but he was not a happy camper in the conversation we had when I told him, no, you're not going to get a car uh, because you've got to focus on school. He was looking in terms of that 11th grade year in high school I was looking at terms of his lifespan. You need to concentrate on school so you can possibly get a scholarship to college. And then when you're ready for it, all that other stuff can move in. How many times do we come to God and say, Lord, I want my car? And God says, no. And we say, well, you don't love me anymore. And God says, the whole reason I ain't giving this to you right now is because I do love you. The reason I'm holding off right now is because I do love you. If I give you what you want, when you want, the way you want it every time, it will do you in, even though you don't have enough sense to realize it will do you in. And you will become the most selfish, snotty-nosed person on the face of the earth if I do that. And so God says, I'm not giving you what you want, when you want it, because I'm working in your life in terms of your lifespan and in terms of eternity and in terms of my kingdom. I'm not working in your life according to what you want and what seems convenient and best for you right now. What does it mean for God to be good? It means he works with us in terms of eternity. Notice verse 5. It means, what does it mean for God to be good? It means his love endures forever. How do I know that his love endures forever? Because he already paid the full price of his love. When Jesus died on the cross, he went to the farthest length he had to go to get us. He went to the greatest amount of pain to have us. And because he's already put it all out there, everything after the cross for him is easier. Because he's already proved he would go the distance for us because the cross was the distance he had to go. Notice it says his faithfulness endures to all generations. In other words, he keeps his promises. He is persistent. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24 says, He who calls you is faithful and will do it. In other words, he's saying if God calls you to something, he's going to walk with you in it, he's going to walk with you through it, and he's going to give you the power to get through it. Now, as soon as I preach this, you may be tempted to think, 
this. Well, God didn't keep his word over here and God didn't keep his word over there. Let me tell you something I discovered because I've had some times I've gone to the Lord over the years and I said, God, you didn't keep your word. You didn't keep your promises to me. And this is what the Lord did, has done to me on several occasions. He has jacked me up and said, would you please show me that promise in the Bible? Well, it's over in first, you know, Maccabean 5, 6 somewhere. There is no first Maccabean 5, 6. I discovered that I was holding God accountable for promises that he had never made. I was mad with God for stuff that he never committed himself to. And so what I had to do is go back and really begin to look at the word. And every time I get ticked with God, I have to go back and say, God, exactly what did you promise? Because I'm really good, Lord, at putting words in your mouth. Particularly when they're to my advantage. What did you promise? But follow me on this. One of the things I discovered in that struggle is that every time I was getting ticked off with God about a promise that I didn't think he kept that he never made in the first place, I was ignoring promises he had made. And I wasn't living in promises that he had made. When he says in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He doesn't promise us that we won't go through difficult times. And that's a lot of times the way we interpret that verse. Well, God's saying he's my shepherd, and he's not going, that means I don't have difficult times. But that doesn't say that in the 23rd Psalm. What it does say is when you go through the difficult times, I'm going to hold your hand, I'm going to be right there with you, I'm going to beat down everything and tries to take you out. It does give you that promise. But he didn't say I wouldn't take you through the, you wouldn't go through difficult times. He's faithful. He's slow to anger. He doesn't have a, a short fuse. And oh, he's right there with us to write the story of our lives. Not to bless us as we write our own story, but to say we're going to write the story together. And you've got to listen to me, he's saying, as I give you the narrative for it. 1 Corinthians 13 says, his love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Do you realize what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13 about you and I, why he's good? Because when he looks at us, he says, I'm going to bear all things with you. I'm going to believe in all things. I'm going to believe in you on days you don't even believe in yourself and others don't believe in you. I'm going to bear with you. I'm going to hope for you. I'm going to hope with you. And I'm going to endure all things with you. The story that I told the children in the children's sermon this morning just bears out the goodness of God. How many times have we played the prodigal? Lord, I am sick of you. I'm ticked off with you. You're not playing a game I want you to play. So I'm taking my stuff and I'm going home. Actually, I ain't going home. I'm going out to find myself. I'm going out to do what I want to do the way I want to do it in my own way. You can take your word and stuff it as far as I am concerned. Or the more diplomatic approach. Lord, your word is so wonderful and so precious. And I got so many Bibles and I thank you so much for them. And they collect dust in such a wonderful way. And so I'm just going to let them sit on the thing and beautifully collect dust. And I'll look over at my Bible. It sits on the shelf collecting dust. And I will thank you so much for my beautiful Bible. And I'll dust it off every now and then. That's a nice diplomatic way of saying, God, I'm ignoring you. And I'm going to do my own thing. And then we screw it up and we mess it up and the whole bit. I love the way Jesus tells the story. Because it says that when 
the young son started heading back. Notice the verbs. The father saw him. Felt compassion. Ran. Embraced him. Kissed him. And what I love about that is, can you imagine what the boy smelled like and looked like? He hugged him and kissed him and embraced him through stench. He wrapped his arms around an emaciated figure whose clothes were ripped and torn and smelled like a pig. But you know when you love somebody, you don't really care what they smell like or what they love, look like. Because you love deeper than smell and looks. And what God was saying to us in that story is that when you come to me, And you start taking a step. I'm already waiting for you. I've already placed inside of you the yearning for me. And I'll meet you more than halfway. And I'll hold you. And I'll hug you. Because that's what it means for God to be good. I love the way the story ends in verse 24. It says, they began to celebrate. Notice the use of... Of the plural pronoun. They begin to celebrate. At the center of that celebration. Was daddy. And his younger son. They begin to celebrate. And folks that's what prayer is all about. We celebrate with him. That we belong to him. And he has given his life and his blood for us. And that's the reason it gets loud sometimes when we celebrate. And that's where the conversation of prayer starts. Let's pray. Lord, right now in your presence, we celebrate who you are. Jesus, we celebrate that you loved us, that you died on the cross, that you rose again, and that you are calling us into your presence. And Lord... We don't need to have a lot of well-defined requests every time we come to you. Often, Lord, we do. But Jesus, what you called us to do first when we come into your presence is not say, God, give me or God, do for me. But Jesus, we want to praise you. We want to bless you. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for dying. Thank you for rising again. Thank you for the promises of your second coming. Thank you for a relationship with you that Jesus grows deeper every day. Thank you for waiting for us on the road and running to us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, I just feel the tug inside of me to come to Jesus. I'm like that young man. In that story. And and I feel that tug. And I I feel him calling me. And I need to respond to him. In just a moment as we sing. I want to invite you to walk the aisle. He's already walked to the cross for you. He's walked out of a tomb trying to get to you. He's walking to you right now. By the power of the Holy Spirit. But you got to take a step in his direction. you got to take him up on his invitation. And so as we sing. I want to invite you to come. and, And just say Jesus. I'm coming to you because you're already coming to me. And and I just give myself to you, Lord.
I'd love to pray with you about making that decision. If you hear and you sense that, that the Lord is calling you into ministry, I invite you to come. If you hear and you sense that God's working you in any way and you need someone to pray with you, please come. And if you're here and you sense the Lord's calling you to become part of our church, family here, I invite you to come. Lord, have your way with us in these moments and help us, Jesus, to respond to you in your name. Amen.